We find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to begin at verse 35. Let's read it together. Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants in whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. As we further now our journey into the Gospel of Luke together, we now find Jesus here in the last seven days of his life asking his disciples to look past the cross. In fact, to look past the resurrection and now to consider the ultimate, and that is the return of Jesus Christ, where he then consummates all things back onto himself. He is asking his disciples to look forward. He's asking them to consider their master's return. The introduction of the study of the last days is called ecclesiology. It is the eschatology, excuse me, I've been talking about ecclesiology for so long. Eschatology, pardon me on that. It's a study of the last days. The days in which would precede the return of Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, though, we find this introduction to his return at a very interesting spot within the narrative which Luke is giving us. In fact, often when the discussion of eschatology comes forward, we often divorce it from this particular application. And as a result of the divorce from this application, many Christians don't see how eschatology is necessarily important to their everyday Christian life. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. The study of eschatology, I believe, is one of the most fascinating studies of the Bible. And it's not simply due to the fact that there are so many different understandings and opinions concerning the times in which lead to the return of Jesus Christ. The majority of Christians in evangelical Christianity still believe that Jesus Christ will physically return to this earth. But the events that precede that return have been discussed and debated since the ascension of Christ in the book of Acts. But Luke here gives us this indication that Jesus is now asking his disciples to look forward. And to be exegetically true to the text, let us understand that he introduces this particular subject with a clear-cut objective at hand. And that was to help his disciples to overcome the certain temptations of sin. 
to help them gain what I would consider an eternal mindset rather than a temporal one. To allow them to look past their immediate circumstance and the microcosm of the day in which they find themselves and allow them to walk into the reality of the truth of the macro, the overall arching theme the narrative that governs all things, the mega-narrative, if you will, to help them to understand that what the disciples are seeing before themselves isn't the end-all. That there's more, a lot more yet to come. And even when we discuss eschatology within evangelical Christianity, we often reduce it to the study of the signs of the times, the placement of the rapture, the details of his return around the battle of Armageddon. And yet, when John writes and gives us the book of Revelation, we find that the culmination of all of this is found in a new heavens and a new earth. And the restoration of all things has now taken place where God has finally now brought things back to that point of creation where he said all things are good. The return of Jesus Christ is one of the great hopes of Christianity. I will argue diligently that the apostles who wrote and gave us the New Testament lived within a conscious awareness that Jesus Christ could return at any time. Believing that and living accordingly to that. Allowing the understanding of the Lord's return to give them that broader perspective to allow them to live beyond the temporal uh, ideologies and means of the current day, to allow them to see the big picture, to allow them to see what God was doing from his perspective. Before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that I no longer call you my servants, but now I call you my friends, and all the things that the Father has revealed to me, I now reveal to you. And this is part of that revelation, his return. But in the case of Luke, let us understand that as we looked at the passage just previous to this one, Jesus was concerned that in his departure, in his crucifixion, and therefore his resurrection, and then his ascension, that the disciples that were following him, while apart from him, would be lured away from their mission, from the task that is at hand by sins of covetousness, by worry and anxiety and fear, and the accumulation of materialism. And so Jesus remedies this by sharing with them that there is a bigger picture at hand here. And that he wants them to be watching, waiting, and ready for his return. John alludes to this in his first epistle, that those who live in the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will, you know, uh, pursue holiness in light of it. I believe that in any study of the scripture, the theology must have a practical implication and uh, uh, application within our personal lives. 
And when I study the return of Jesus Christ, I ask myself, how does this impact my life today? And how shall I respond to this glorious truth that he is going to return? And throughout the New Testament, continuously I read and I see that I am to live full on for the Lord. That I am to love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. Showing and demonstrating that I believe his return can happen at any moment. And I do. I live with that conscious awareness that I personally hold to that the Lord can return for his church at any moment. There's nothing more that has to be fulfilled. Now, here at Calvary, we believe that the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ are two independent events. The rapture of the church is a moment in time where Christ returns for his church specifically, snatching them up and then plunging the world into a seven-year period of judgment. And of that time, we have no idea when that rapture will take place. Now, other whole, others, Christians, loving brothers and sisters, hold to different positions. Some believe it's going to happen midway through the seven-year period of time. Others believe that it will happen at the end of the tribulation. And we are to love them, and this is not an issue to divide over, to argue about, and, and to separate upon. But I do believe that if it is pre-trib, that they have to wait then. If they're going to hold to mid or post, and after we leave, they can go later, right? No, I'm kidding. But when we get into these kind of discussions, and they're fun discussions to have, let us not forget the overall. Let us not forget what Jesus is trying to encourage us to consider here in our text this morning. As Luke continues to write out the events of the life of Jesus Christ to Theophanes, and allowing him to read in a systematic manner all the things that Jesus Christ began in the book of Luke and all the things that continued through the hands of the, uh, the apostles in the book of Acts. I believe that Luke is bringing forward here that Christ remedied or tried to instruct the disciples not to take their eyes off of him, but to keep their eyes upon him even in his departure. And by doing so, the only way that can take place, keeping our eyes on the Lord, is then waiting for his return with great anticipation. Unfortunately, there are many issues in our society and many reasons that the study of eschatology has unfortunately fallen to the wayside in the uh, pulpits of many churches across America today. You know, of course, we were saturated with hyper and sensationalized material. And of course, Chicken Little can only cry so many times that the sky is falling before people begin to tune out, correct? And unfortunately, that has occurred in a large degree. And time after time after time again, there will be those who rush to bring out information to say, this is it. This is the last nail in the coffin before the return of Jesus Christ. And I've been hearing that now for 30 years. 
Do I believe we're 2,000 years closer than we ever have been before? Absolutely. Do I believe each and every event that we uh, move through takes us one step closer to the return of Jesus Christ? Absolutely I do. But I did not see the apostles in the New Testament panicking over each and every case of inconvenience or disruption and so forth. But they kept their eyes fixed upon Christ. Allowing the day to bring what the day will bring. Trusting in his preservation of their personal lives and of course ultimately their salvation for their eternal lives. But they believed he could return at any moment. Let us be careful because we already have those self-proclaimed prophecy experts that are telling us that the coronavirus is of course the pestilence that Jesus has talked about in Matthew 24 per se or in Revelation and so forth. And I've heard this about SARS, I've heard this about MERS, I've heard this about you know, Ebola, I've heard this about AIDS and so forth going back over the 30 years. And unfortunately, it continues to desensitize people to the reality, including the bride of Christ herself, the church. Let us be careful, but the Bible clearly tells us that we should be watching, waiting, and awake, anticipating his return. And not missing the opportunities of the day to focus on the circumstances of the day. The coronavirus has given us a platform as Christians to show our love to other people, to show our confidence in Christ to other people, to show and to demonstrate that we care for other people in a selfless, sacrificial manner. And doing so, keeping our eyes on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we know that in that day, after his return, the new heavens and the new earth will be created and all of the sorrow and suffering that our world is currently experiencing will all be done away with. So he says to his disciples in verse 35, stay dressed for action. Gird up your loins. Be ready to move. Understand that the arrival of my coming can happen at any time. Be ready. Be prepared. As they would observe Passover as Jewish individuals, they would always have their sandals on and their belt about them, knowing that the Passover was going to lead to their deliverance, to the promised land in which God had for them, that their deliverer was coming. He says that in the same manner concerning his return. Be ready. As we talk about one who clothes themselves, if you look at the Bible through the lens of what is called biblical theology, you will discover that Paul uses this illustration often to demonstrate the removal of unrighteousness and the replacement of the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon me as we are clothed in his pure garments. 
Of course, the book of Revelation talks about that, being clothed in white garments, ultimately forever. First and foremost, if we are going to be ready, he is indicating to us that our watching eye, our anticipation of his return, should lead to righteous living. Meaning that we are living out our Christian faith each and every day. That you and I understand that a transformation has taken place, that we have moved from darkness to light, from death to life, and that we are new creations in Christ. And therefore, we should live accordingly. As we have stated often here on Sunday morning and on Wednesday evenings, that in the New Testament Scriptures, when God says an individual is to believe something, it is meant to be known and to be interpreted as one who understands and believes in academic, also playing out practically within their life. It was an oxymoron to say that you believe in something and therefore not act upon it. That was foreign to this culture. This is not something that occurred in the New Testament. It wasn't something, if someone believed something, they acted upon it. And Jesus says, if you believe that I am going to return at an unpronounced time, and you therefore are living righteously as a result of that belief. And I believe this is what John is capitalizing upon when we come to 1 John. Talking about walking and living in holiness before the Lord. But he also says to keep your lamps burning, which in that culture at this time in this particular illustration meant a vigilance, meaning they were waiting in great anticipation that they were ready to go and they were looking and also observing the events to take place that they may not miss the time of his arrival. But does not the Lord also say to us as we play out that we are now the light of the world? Should we not show our lights unto the, unto the world? We cannot do this if we walk in unrighteousness before him. And be like those who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. The wedding feast was common knowledge to the Jewish listener at this time and even probably to Theophilus who was reading this he understood that the Jewish feast, uh, wedding feast was a period of time that lasted a week and then the husband's return can be at any moment to his home with his bride. But it also drapes all of this in a celebratory attitude and mindset, isn't it? He didn't say, wait for the master's return from the funeral. He said, wait for the master's return from the wedding feast. This is a joyous occasion. This is a uh, wonderful occurrence. This is something that should be celebrated by Christians and waited for and longed for with great anticipation so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. One Jewish historian said one of the most awkward situations that you could place a new husband in Uh, after a Jewish wedding feast was for him to come home and the door to his new home be locked. It would send mixed signals to the confidence of the bride of his ability to provide for her. But here Jesus said, allowing the servants 
to open the door the moment he comes and knocks. And blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now, this is the portion of the illustration that would have been incredibly uncommon to the hearers and to the readers of this letter. For for the master would never place himself in such a position to serve his own servants. And of course, let us understand that the word servant here is the word doulos in in Greek, excuse me, and it means slave. It means one who is completely given over to the servitude of another. And yet he says to these who are awake when I come. And that word awake means that they are alert, sober-minded, thinking clearly, understanding their circumstances and the times in which they are in. One who is not fallen asleep as Paul refers to in Thessalonians. And I'd like you to turn there with me if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Paul uses this same language. And please, let us understand that when we read further into the New Testament, and we read the epistles of Paul, and though Paul, of course, being Jewish himself, wrote to Gentile believers, he still incorporated the language that was used by Jesus and his disciples in the teaching of the Gentile believers. And so you can see a theological consistency amongst many of the word usages from the Gospels, Acts, and of course, into the Epistles. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, Paul writes, So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, well, they sleep at night indicating that it is still dark. And those who get drunk are drunk at night, at times when they feel that no one is watching. That's what he's saying here. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of our salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It is possible for a believer to be asleep, so distracted with the things of this world that they are no longer living in that sober thinking, Often they are governed by the desires of their old life rather than the uh, needs of the new. And as a result, they become ineffective. They're living as they are still living in darkness. They are walking and, and going about it as if it were still night. That they had not been translated from death to life or from darkness to light. Paul talks about these Christians living in a carnal state, and especially as we embrace this in 1 Corinthians on Wednesday evenings. Individuals that are living more for the flesh than for the glory of God. 
Paul says, let these things be abandoned. Let us wake up. If I were ever to write a doctrinal dissertation, I would say, let us wake up and smell the coffee. Let us understand what is being spoken and being said. Let us understand the urgency of it all. As Christians, we must be very careful not to become so consumed with this world that we lose our focus and that we are asleep to the things that God is doing. For God has given us through His Word the revelation that we need to know and to understand Him, us, and the world around us. And let us know these things and live accordingly. In the light of the reality of His return. In the righteousness in which Christ had prescribed for them. As believers in Jesus Christ, today more than ever, if we are going to prevent ourselves from being lured away by the distractions of this world, if we are going to allow the Lord to truly reveal to us and give us wisdom beyond that of this world, then we need to heed that wisdom to allow us to live properly within this world. And I believe that what Jesus is doing here is saying that if you're constantly looking for my return, you're going to live accordingly. And the temptations of this world will begin to pale in comparison of the knowledge and the understanding that I could return at any moment. And wanting to please the master in whom provided all things for us, who loved us unconditionally, gave us mercy beyond mercy, grace beyond grace, who sacrificed himself on our behalf. Paul was right when he said, the only response that I could ever bring forward to ever ever, ever, ever justify such an action is to lay myself down as a living sacrifice before the Lord. We as Christians today need to once again rediscover the incredible truths of the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at New Testament passages over the next few weeks that were given to the Christians of that time to encourage them to do just that. To live with that great anticipation. To help us know and to outline for us and profile for us and you know, drill deeper upon it, drill down on it a little bit more about the understanding of what's going to happen next. And an interesting thing is going to occur. Not only will you begin to uh, keep your eyes more upon the Lord than I believe ever before if you've, ever, if you've lived with a dismissive attitude towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's going to happen also is you're going to gain a greater context for everything that is going on around us as Christians. This is what Jesus brought forward when they began to worry and covet the things of this world, he says, remember that I am coming back. Be ready. When they grew anxious and worried, he said, remember, I'm coming back. When they began to fear, he says, remember, I'm coming back. So you and I also, let us live with that anticipation each and every day of our Christian life. 
Warren Worsby tells a story of a famous pastor in Europe who was constantly asked by others about the return of Jesus Christ. And so this pastor would ask that individual who had approached him, do you believe that the Lord is going to return today? That's what this pastor would ask of this individual. And the individual would say, no, no, I I don't believe that he's going to return in our day. He goes, well, that's interesting, the pastor said, because Jesus said exactly that, for he is coming at an hour in which you do not expect. I thought that was brilliant. Warren Worsby later then wrote this. When you are living in in the future tense, it is difficult for the things of the world to ensnare you. And in this portion of our text, Jesus explained how we can offset this ensnarement by being ready and anticipating His return. So as we look ahead into the New Testament over the next couple of weeks, we will show you how the apostles wrote to these newfound believers in Jesus Christ. I have once heard that someone said that, well, they didn't feel it was appropriate to introduce eschatology into, for example, a new believer study of the Word of God. And yet Paul the Apostle, who was only with the Thessalonican church for six weeks, chose to give a great portion of his teaching to these newfound Christians who he had such a short time with He dedicated great portions of his time to the return of Jesus Christ and what they can anticipate. In fact, them thinking that they had missed the day of the Lord prompted his second letter to them. If Paul felt it that urgent 2,000 years ago, if we are 2,000 years closer today, how much more urgent of a subject has this now become? We don't know what tomorrow offers and holds for anyone. We don't know how this epidemic, pandemic, is going to play out. But the one thing I can guarantee you is this, that it by no means delays in any way, shape, or form the return of Jesus Christ. And therefore, in that alone, we as Christians have something greatly to rejoice in.